Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, picking up with the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th Commandments for our Catechesis Lessons today. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is the pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And Pastor Bestel, we're going to go ahead and get right into it today. A lot of commandments to cover, and I always run out of time, it seems like, with you. But uh, you're doing such a great job with our catechesis lessons. Let's get right into the seventh commandment. You shall not steal. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way but help him to improve and protect his possessions and income. Go ahead, Pastor Bessel. Thank you, Sean. Good to be with you again. Let's start with the seventh commandment by pointing out what should be obvious, but perhaps isn't, that this commandment tells us by definition that God approves of private property. Uh, We've got this weird thing going on in our society today where more and more people are talking about things like almost like a new world order or a almost like a communal economy or world economy in which supposedly the utopia that we can set up is that no one owns anything and everything is just sort of shared by everyone. This commandment says, no, you have your own private property and that's not sinful. It's not sinful to own property. We don't all have to take vows of poverty or think that is the most Christian, pious way of life, but rather God gives us daily bread, including property, house, home, in addition to wife and children and land and animals and all that I have for this body and life, clothing, shoes, anything that you can name in that daily bread. And so we do have private property. And if we have private property, then it is to be defended. And if our neighbor has private property, because, of course, these commandments are not so much to be read by us as we are the victims and look at how God is protecting us from our neighbor, but actually just the opposite. God is protecting our neighbor from us. And so if our neighbor is to have private property, just as I'm to have private property, then how do we love and support one another? In fact, there's a fairly well-known passage there, Matthew chapter 7. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Isn't that sort of the overarching theme of this idea of you shall not steal? Don't take from your neighbor if you don't want your neighbor taking from you. And so, though people often will refer to something like Acts chapter 2, remember there's that passage there right on the heels of the day of Pentecost where it says that they all had everything together, they all shared everything in common. That's great, but that is not therefore a prescription of Christian life. In fact, in just a couple chapters later, when Ananias and Sapphira say that they are going to give their offerings to God and to the church, and then they withhold some of their offerings, remember when Peter goes to condemn them, he doesn't say, you owe us everything because communal living is God's way of doing things. But rather he says, what you owned was your own to do with as you pleased. But once you make a promise, now you're lying to the Holy Spirit when you don't keep that promise. And so they were condemned not because they didn't give everything, but because they had promised something to the church and then did not deliver on that promise. So we are given property by God to maintain, to be stewards of, to benefit our daily life. Uh, The argument that goes out there today, you know, people who aren't Christian like to try and entice Christians into their worldview by saying, oh, Jesus was a socialist. Well, that's not true. And so we can rejoice, in a sense, in the seventh commandment just by the fact that it reminds us private property is not sinful. And I'm not being selfish by owning private property. 
So now how do we defend our neighbor's property from our own greed and jealousy? How is our property defended from our neighbor's greed and jealousy? This is now the seventh commandment. Uh, Luther's large catechism meaning says that we should not take away from or diminish. Great word choice there. That's significant considering how careless we can be with our neighbor's property. For example, right now in many states, the housing market is just booming. And maybe there's not such a sense of saying everything around my house has to be in tip-top shape or else I won't be able to sell it. Now it seems like the minute you put your house on the market, it's going to sell just because of the market we're in. But what if we were in a tougher market? What if it wasn't what's referred to as a seller's market, but it was referred to as a buyer's market where there were many more houses out there for sale and you really had to have the best showing house to be able to get rid of it. And the buyer comes in and he sees your neighbor not keeping a good lawn. His property is full of a bunch of spare tires laying all over the property or broken down fences or whatever. And he thinks, man, I don't know that I want to live next to a neighbor who lives like that. And so he passes on your house, not because of the value of your house, but because of your neighbor's carelessness toward your property and how his carelessness toward his own household devalues your property. So when Luther uses this word diminish, it reminds us that it's not just a proactive act of stealing, but it's also simply being careful to make sure that we don't diminish or devalue that which belongs to our neighbor by treating it or even treating our own property in ways that would devalue it. In uh, the large catechism, well, in fact, before I leave that point, think not only just of my next door neighbor, but think of how this even refers to, as the word neighbor always does, my closest neighbor are people in my own home. And so what about when a child in the family takes his brother's toy and breaks it and then says, oh, well, it wasn't my toy. That is actually a breaking of the seventh commandment. Or when, a, uh, when one brother takes another sister's or sister takes a brother's toy and then loses it or leaves it out in the rain and it gets rusty and mom and dad can't afford to replace it. And so they just say, well, you just got to deal with this rusty toy. That is a breaking of the seventh commandment. And we don't often think of it that way because, again, as we even mentioned in last week's show, the narrow mindedness or the narrow view with which we interpret these things. We think that this commandment is just all about saying, unless I actually take something from my neighbor and rip it out of his hands, I'm never breaking this commandment. And that's not true. Just harming our neighbor's property and possessions, devaluing it in any way, not helping him to protect it and improve his possessions and his income in any way is an actual breaking of this commandment. And it shows us how much there is in keeping this commandment. In the large catechism, Luther says, that this idea of stealing from our neighbor includes all kinds of advantage for us in all sorts of trade to our neighbor's disadvantage. And the quote is, wherever there is trading or taking and giving of money for merchandise or labor. So we can talk about things that are easy to think about. We think about the car salesman, and uh, my own grandfather was a used car salesman, so I don't speak with any disrespect to car salesmen out there, but there's a stereotype that the car salesman or the used car salesman is always trying to sort of get the best out of the gullible shopper, if you will, and way overcharging for the value, the true value of the car. But you know, the uh, reverse is also true. But when a customer, when a car buyer goes to the lot and he says, hey, you should sell this to me at cost because I know that you make tons of money on everyone else. That's not actually helping our neighbor. That car salesman is a neighbor too, and he has to be able to make a living. Selling it at cost isn't going to help him bring home bread to his family. And so it's not about always getting the best deal. It's about getting a fair deal. Nothing wrong with trying to look for the good, fair deal for your family, for not paying more than you need to, but trying to basically talk down and argue down your neighbor from that, which is a fair deal, into best deal for me, who cares what it means for them. That's not really a good understanding of Christian love according to the seventh commandment. But it's not just in those big, easy to spot situations. It's also in the little ones. What happens when you go to a garage sale 
and you find something at a garage sale that you know is far more valuable than what they have listed on it. And we say, well, that's what they listed it for, so they must know what they're talking about. Well, maybe not. And, and it's just simply something to weigh. Do we have the Christian duty to at least help them or give them the opportunity to clarify with them? To, are you aware that this is, you know, maybe they think it's just a, I'll use something obviously hyperbolic here. Maybe they think that it's a copy of the Declaration of Independence and it's the original one. Well, you know, obviously that's not going to be the case. But you can see where if something is of great value and we get it in a way that only appears honest, we're actually harming our neighbor. And we should be a little bit more careful about that as Christians and saying, if I would want my neighbor to be honest with me and not just try to get the very best deal out of me, then why won't I be honest with my neighbor and also look out for what's best for him? And that would be a very simple way of appreciating God's desires and God's commandment here in the seventh commandment. It's certainly the same with any workman. Luther even refers to workmen, mechanics, and laborers who overcharge because the neighbor is desperate for help. And that's sort of a tough one. You know, maybe at a certain point, a laborer has to charge extra because of the immediacy of the situation, because in the emergency of the situation, he's got to leave one paying customer to come to the paying customer whose situation is more urgent. So maybe it's understandable if there's a slight upcharge for that emergency situation, or if the plumber has to come out at three in the morning because everything is flooding. Well, maybe it's understandable if there's a little bit of an upcharge over that versus coming out the next day, you know, on his time. At the same time, there is such thing as, if you will, price gouging. And Luther actually, in other writings, speaks very vehemently against this type of price gouging or usury and, and loaning with high interest rates and things, because all we're doing is taking advantage of our neighbor's desperate situation. And that's not an act of Christian love. We should do what is fair and right, and not just what is best for me and who cares what happens to my neighbor because I'll never see him after this anyway. So when we see how widespread this is, we recognize that the world is, as Luther says, nothing but a vast wide sales booth full of great thieves. That's a quote out of the large catechism. Or another way to say it in our society that has sort of become commonplace in our society is every man for himself, right? And that is contrary when you think about it. That is contrary to faith in God and fervent love toward one another. And so we should not be, as Christians, enticed by sort of this rugged American individualism, which might be great for a work ethic, right? To say rugged individualism as a matter of work ethic, to say, hey, don't depend on anybody else to care for you. You care for yourself and your household. Then great. That's a great phrase to use to remind people of their own responsibility to care for their family rather than just sit back and wait for government or somebody else to do it for them. But in terms of how we love our neighbor, this idea of rugged individualism or dog eat dog or every man for himself or survival of the fittest, this is not Christian love. And the seventh commandment highlights this very well. Uh, Luther says in the catechism, he says, maybe a well-ordered government is the check and the restraint to this type of materialism. Uh, but we might ask the question, what happens when a government becomes corrupted? and works with the greedy and the powerful. The claim that politicians often make, we're for the middle class, we're for the little guy, that is actually sort of a subtle admission that the world is dominated by greed and power. And it's a breaking of the seventh commandment, isn't it? This world dominated by greed and power. And so those who promise to be with the little guy often disappoint because the government too knows how to steal and not defend our possessions and property, but to claim it as if it's the government's to do with as it pleases. This is sort of an interesting tangent here that remember the scriptures do say the government has a right to set a tax rate and the government has a right to claim taxes, uh, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Everyone is to be subject to the governing authorities to pay taxes to whoever taxes are owed, things of that nature. That does not mean that the idea of private property is an idea that belongs to the whims of the government. So you, you have at the same time, you have God giving the government 
and yet God also giving the commandment, you shall not steal, to say there is such thing as private property. And so we do have to be careful, uh, especially in our day and age in which it seems that perhaps the government is either taking more or we're simply willing to concede more to the government to say, no, that the government does not have authority over every single material possession out there. Again, the three estates, if you will, the government, the household, and the church. And the household does have this right to individual property or private property, which means my neighbor's property needs me to help encourage him and defend him and defend his property, because who else is going to defend it? He needs his neighbors to be able to help him defend his property so that we're not just living as a bunch of rugged individualists. Again, it's great for work ethic, not so great of a phrase for Christian love toward our neighbor. Um, Consider, uh, again, even in the same mindset, how universally true Luther's comment is when he says that, uh, that there is no courage to stand up to, but to join the rich. There are no ethics to discipline greed, for example, of welfare recipients. Remember, even the poor can be greedy. Uh, Greed is not just an issue of the rich, but the poor, where the rich might not be greedy for $20, the poor individual might think that he is king for a day if he gets his hands on $20. And so we have to be careful of defending our neighbor's property from every individual heart, not just the rich, but also from the poor. And so, you know, is there a proper place for welfare in a society? Is there a misuse of it in society? And as pastors in the church, are we willing to call that to repentance if there's a misuse of it? Uh, So that we do not, not only do we not treat them as dependent victims, but also that we don't treat someone else's private property who is perhaps being taxed away from him for the benefit of this welfare recipient. Uh, We don't disregard that person's hard-earned property and just take it from him, uh, as the saying goes, rob Peter to pay Paul. Uh, Second Thessalonians is a good reminder here. Let him who does not work not eat. That's straight from the scriptures. That's not one who's being unloving toward the needy. By all means, there are needy in society, and we should be generous and careful in helping them and caring and providing where they need provision. Uh, So this leads to a deeper point that Christians ought to consider carefully. When comparing different governments even, capitalism, socialism, it's important not to fall into the trap of saying, which is God's favorite? Right? As we said, Acts chapter 2 was not trying to set up a utopia. There is no perfect man-made government. One can find fault both with capitalism and socialism and any other type of man-made government out there. Perhaps the better question is, does one have more defenses against sinful man than the other? Does the hope in socialism, which tends to hope in the ethics of the powerful few, does that defend my neighbor's property and possessions more than capitalism, which puts its hope in the ethic of the independent many? Uh, so there are a lot of interesting questions here that you could get into sociology, a- economy, things like that. Uh, but it all derives from the seventh commandment and God's command of us that we not be greedy with our neighbor's things, but that we seek to defend and help our neighbor benefit and improve his possessions. One of the things that I often teach in connection with this commandment is the nature of stewardship. But I actually like how really it became clear for me last week, but is especially becoming more and more clear as we go through the commandments here, is the nature of stewardship really permeates more than just the seventh commandment. Uh, When you set up for us last week how we consider our neighbor and the defense of our neighbor in terms of his life, and then also his wife in connection with the sixth commandment. But then also here in terms of his property, we're starting to see that the nature of our stewardship being faithful stewards of what God has given to us also then relates us to our neighbor, which is the nature of government that in community, we want to defend our neighbor having faithful stewardship of his things as well. And that would be the true nature of government then as well. Right, Pastor Bessel, any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Government is there for a very important reason. 
again, in our current social context, you know, some of our listeners might really have some frustrations with government right now. And that's sort of understandable. It goes through good times, bad times, and its government's not perfect either. But government has a very important function from God. Government is a gift from God. And government is there, again, to punish evil, reward good. And that's often not a just a one-on-one relationship between government and the individual that it's trying to hold authority over, but it's also government defending my neighbor from me. And government definitely has a role in that. And government making decisions for all of society that are going to be beneficial for individual property owners individual owners of the stock market finances and all those different things, whatever policies government makes, and this is why I think so many people put so much of their energy and focus and attention into quote unquote politics is not because they like the politics, but because they realize, even if only implicitly and subconsciously, that whatever government does, it's going to have a huge impact on my property and possessions in daily life. And so we ought always pray for government, and yet we ought not pray for government just to do its own will, but we always ought pray for government to be doing what is good in God's eyes, because by that, God promises to bless the society and bless the citizenry and bless our daily bread. So government has a very, very important role here, and yet no matter what type of government it is, uh, as you said, you know, we've been trying to point out how each and every one of these commandments actually draws us back to everything depending upon God, so that no matter the social structure, the Christian must learn that in all things, that first refrain that we say, it's, you know, it's from the scriptures, but we say it as the first refrain in divine service setting three every Sunday in my congregation, our help is in the name of the Lord. That's true not just for spiritual things. But it's true for, as you said, for both realms, church and state, for the entire kingdom that God has created, for all of creation, for the whole universe, in everything. Our help is in the name of the Lord. And notice that the end of that phrase does not point us to some sort of a spiritual reality like the forgiveness of sins. But rather it says, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Everything is his. And everything within this universe is his. The fullness thereof is one of the phrases we use. And so whatever the social structure you're in, thank God for government. And yet understand the roles of neighbors helping neighbors, of government helping neighbors, of everyone living not only for his own individual self, but with faith in God, also living then for the love of the neighbor. Well said. And I to finish my thought there too, I think As you've brought out with several of the commandments, sometimes we have too narrow a view of the commandment. I think one of the things that happens is too narrow a view of stewardship as well. I think that's kind of important to highlight here as well, is that stewardship's not just, you know, my own stuff, my own private property that God has given me, but also then in relation to my neighbor, which I think will lead us into with just a couple minutes here, but we can at least start this eighth commandment that we would also consider our stewardship of our neighbor's reputation and so forth as we cover under the eighth commandment. So I'll just go ahead and read the eighth commandment from the small catechism here. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. So this one is one of those commandments that seems like, especially as I've set up there, if we're considering our stewardship, it's directed entirely at our neighbor and not so much about us personally, right? That's exactly correct. This commandment is all about your neighbor's honor and good reputation. It's all about defending that because without reputation, what does one have left? It's hard even to get a job. It's hard to be respected in your neighborhood or in your community if you have no reputation. And so, again, as these commandments are not so much in saying to the individual who's reading them, you're the victim, let God show you how he's going to protect you from that evil, wicked person out there, but rather just the opposite. The Ten Commandments are showing us your neighbor is the one that you are given a responsibility to look out for and to love and not just live your life 
focused on the capital and me God that we'd like to serve, but rather with faith in God, we are to live with fervent love toward our neighbor and not just fervent love toward myself. And so the Eighth Commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor or bear false witness against your neighbor. Instinctively, we know that our neighbor's reputation is vital. We know that our own reputation is vital. Instinctively, this is why we cave to peer pressure. This is why we talk about the idea of what are the social norms and whether or not one is going along with social norms. Uh, we hear now this past winter and spring and now into the summer, we're talking a lot about this idea of cancel culture. Society has been indoctrinated, and I think largely by our media, to tear down our neighbor's reputation in order to, in a sense, build up my own. 20 years ago, it was even referred to as the politics of personal destruction. Nowadays, it's just called news <laughs> and, and morality, right? This is sort of the new normal in our society. And it's a very vicious cycle to get into. Now, you know, we've got certain phrases where if I say the phrase and then if I say I'm not necessarily a supporter of that, uh, you know, you, you use a politically charged phrase like Black Lives Matter. And if for whatever reason you don't say that, if you say all lives matter, now you're considered a racist. And so in a very subtle form, our society has taken the Eighth Commandment. It sort of turned everything on its head. And it's basically said we now live as a hyphenated America where I'm going to assume certain stereotypes about you. And I'm going to assume something about your reputation rather than putting the best construction on everything, rather than explaining everything in the kindest possible way, rather than being quick to judge, right? Really, the Eighth Commandment is a commandment about patience. It's a commandment that says, you know, I might even legitimately see something that seems not quite right, but let me be patient and not so quick to cast judgment, because once that judgment is cast, it's hard to undo that judgment. And so we have to be very careful with this Eighth Commandment to read rightly into it that this is a commandment all about patience in judging our neighbor's reputation. Uh, if you choose, for example, for your children not to receive what has so far been a largely untested vaccine, maybe there's pressure to do that. Uh, you know, in the Chicagoland area on the radio out there, there are a lot of advertisements right now. Do your part. Get vaccinated. Everyone's doing their part. Well, what about the parent who is wants to be cautious with their child's physical safety? Is their reputation now being harmed when rather it should be applauded and saying, you know what, a parent has a responsibility for the child's safety. And if the parent doesn't believe or doesn't feel that they have enough information to make this decision, why should we harm their reputation by implying that they're not doing their part for society by trying to make an educated decision for the safety of their child? See, so it's a very insidious thing that we do when we think that the reputation can be undercut without actually harming anyone. There's no physical harm that is done here in many ways, right? That's the insidious nature of harming somebody's reputation. You don't leave them with a black eye or with a bloody nose. You know, they're still breathing and all these things. And yet, boy, it does so much harm to their daily life to be ostracized because of quick judgment. And, and perhaps the great irony here is that the loudest mindset in our society right now says that it is discriminatory not to see America as a hyphenated people. I really think that socially we can sort of see the hyphenated America as an Eighth Commandment issue. Uh, but then it stereotypes everyone based on hyphenated realities. So instead of just all being Americans, instead of just being neighbors, right, the scriptures never say, love your hyphenated neighbor as yourself. Uh, in fact, remember Jesus' example when the man asks, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus launches into a whole parable on the Good Samaritan, where it's a Samaritan uh, and a Jew. And of course, Samaritans and Jews, Jesus' whole point is that they won't even see each other as neighbors. And so in the same way, in this sort of hypercharged, hyphenated America, as Christians, we should be standing up and simply saying, wait a second, everyone is my neighbor. I don't care how you're hyphenated. There's no reason for hyphenations. Everyone is my neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. I shouldn't have to take the time 
to methodically say, I love this hyphenated American this way, and I love that hyphenated American that way. We're just all neighbors together. Uh, And therefore, this Eighth Commandment calls us just to love one another. We do have to be careful, I suppose, in teaching this commandment to point out that there's a difference between using stereotypes in a negatively judgmental way versus using stereotypes and generalities that can be an important part of like a sociological study and trend. To say, for example, which is factually true right now, that Asian Americans right now are the most financially wealthy demographic, that's just a generality that states truth with, of course, exceptions to that stereotype in society. I'm sure you'll find some of your neighbors who happen to be Asian American who are not the most wealthy people in America. And yet these demographic studies can provide generalities that are not therefore judgmental. But once the generalities are made in a sense to call to repentance or to label as a sinner greater than myself, Right? Once we start using these hyphenated realities to say that person is a sinner, they're somehow less than me, they're different than me, and therefore I'm not going to defend their reputation because it's not the same as my reputation, then those generalities must stop. And so to call to repentance is an individual matter. It's not a generality matter. It's not a stereotype matter. Uh, not all men are guilty of male chauvinism. Not all women are guilty of radical feminism. Uh, Husbands are not Homer Simpson and wives are not Roseanne. Not all people who are tempted with homosexual desires are impenitent. And therefore, they should not be cast into this mindset that they're somehow the enemy of the church when they might simply be a sinner struggling with this particular temptation. And so this is important. So Eighth Commandment, and we can get more to this, I suppose, on the other side of the break, but Eighth Commandment is very much one in saying, be patient with judging, be patient in making mental judgments. Uh, And then perhaps on the other side of the break, we'll get into whether or not we even have vocation to judge. Absolutely. That's a good place to go ahead and take our break. And we'll pick up on the other side of the break. What is the place and vocation of when we are called to judge and make a judgment? And when ought we withhold that judgment for the sake, again, of our neighbor's reputation as you're covering so well for us here under the Eighth Commandment? We'll continue that on the other side of the break. That's Pastor Mark Bestall, our catechist. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUL. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue our series, The Catechized Life, and our catechetical lessons covering the 7th through 10th commandments here today. Now, I just want to state that just because we're going to try and finish out the commandments today and get four of them all in one episode, which is more than we've been able to cover on previous episodes, it doesn't mean that these commandments are not as important or anything like that. They are all very important. In fact, as we've often said, it seems like on every episode of this show, There's always much more that could be said, and so we could certainly go into greater depth with the teaching on each of these. And just a reminder that in the history of the show, we certainly have done that as we've covered both the small and large catechisms previously by reading the text and providing an audio commentary of it as we went with a panel of pastors. You can find those episodes archived for on-demand listening at kfo.org. And in fact, I remember about six or seven years ago when I was first on Concord Matters, And then I was a guest as part of the panel of pastors to provide the commentary. And they were in the large catechism then. And I think it was several months in between the first couple times I was on as a guest. And so about seven or eight episodes or so in between. And both times they were still going through what Luther writes in the fourth commandment. So you can certainly go pretty deep into all of these teachings. However, with this particular trip through the Book of Concord, as we're covering the catechisms here, 
with this series, I wanted to follow the encouragement of Martin Luther and just give the simple teaching that we would have a foundation, a base for which we can think more deeply about these things throughout our days and as a part of our regular devotional life, as they are so expansive that they do indeed encompass all of life. And so with that reminder of what we are doing here in this series, Pastor Bestel, right before the break, you were giving us the simple teaching and giving us that foundation for how we can meditate on the Eighth Commandment and its teachings. And you were encouraging us to consider how this commandment invites us to have patience towards our neighbor in defending his reputation. And then just as we needed to take a break, you said that we should consider our vocation according to the Eighth Commandment as to when we should judge or withhold judgment as, again, we are to keep in mind our neighbor's reputation and defending that. So go ahead, Pastor Bestel, and pick us up with that right there. Sure. In large brush strokes, big umbrella picture, being careful with my neighbor's individual reputation is always proper. And therefore, there's sort of an innocent until proven guilty mindset, according to the Eighth Commandment, which, of course, finds itself true also in American law and civil law, which is a great reminder, a great tangent into the idea that there are certain folks who have vocation, certain offices and office holders who have vocation to declare whether or not one is innocent or guilty. And unless we bear that office, we don't necessarily have that vocation. And therefore, it's best in our own vocations, just to basically keep that person's reputation intact, even our own minds, until the one who is the office holder comes along and says, okay, now everyone has reason to know that this person is guilty. We've mentioned sort of the court of public opinion, the hyphenated America in our society, but also certainly that court of public opinion in an official matter, uh, not public opinion so much, but civil law, uh, that court is the court of law, right? Judge, jury, the 12 peers, all of those different things. Uh, Luther even warns in the large catechism, or he even begins his discussion in the large catechism with this reality of the court of law as having that vocational authority to determine whether or not one's reputation needs to be defended or whether he needs to be found guilty of the charge. Luther warns a great quote here, warns that courts of law often, quote, pervert by tricks and technicalities turning black into white. Certainly, they're not a reference to race, but of twisting of truth to fit an argument and win rather than uphold honesty. It should not be the, uh, well, I should say this way, Christians should desire Christian ethical lawyers, judges, because the point should not be to win every case. The point should be for every case to be decided with honesty, integrity, to be decided rightfully. And so Luther even points out there that sadly in our fallen world, even those who carry vocational authority sometimes do not use it properly. And he talks about this idea of the technicalities, the tips and the tricks to try to save one person's reputation or damage another person's reputation. We should always just strive for integrity and honesty in any of these things. But there are also other areas of concern in this commandment regarding vocational authority, regarding a neighbor's reputation. One is spiritual jurisdiction that Luther says the world calls truth, heresy, and vice versa. And then he has a great quote in here, and he says, but let it go. What what an interesting way to talk to the individual Christian and say, don't worry about it. Don't worry what the world thinks of the church. Basically, ignore the world's disdain of the church, but rather simply depend upon those office holders who have the vocational authority to judge the reputation, if you will, of the doctrine, to proclaim right doctrine and to denounce and reject and repudiate bad doctrine. And so the world might try to play tricks and use technicalities to get us to deceive us into false doctrine, but depend upon those with the vocational authority, the office of, you know, the office holders of the holy ministry, depend upon them to defend, if you will, the reputation not only of the church, but of Christ and his doctrine. So this is important because it tells the church, stop worrying about what the world thinks of you, just be faithful. And think of how this eases the conscience of the congregation. How often do congregations put more hope in trying to defend their reputation and sort of win the world's approval 
They put more hope in being loved by the world, and pretty soon their customs become worldly, and soon after, if they're not careful, their doctrine becomes worldly, all because they wanted to be loved by a world that Jesus himself says, the world will hate you for my name's sake. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. The world doesn't love the church. And so as a matter of reputation, as Luther includes it in the large catechism, those who have jurisdiction in this are those whose entire vocational authority it is to defend the church's pure teaching and doctrine, to keep our eyes and ears and hearts focused on Christ Jesus and his teaching and his doctrine so that we not be deceived by the false prophets who, in giving false doctrine and in in advancing false doctrine, ruin Christ's reputation. Uh, Another point I suppose to bring up here, as Luther does in the large catechism, is to be mindful of gossip. That's probably the simplest way to teach this commandment to children, is that even children in the classroom, they know the harm that gossip does when everyone's picking on one classmate and and, uh, that fiery tongue that, that sets a forest ablaze, the scriptures say. Boy, oh boy, gossip is just a horrible thing. And children come home from school crying. And certainly people, you know, even adults are very aware of this reality, as we've already talked about with the peer pressures and the social pressures in our society nowadays. And so just as Christians to take the lead and the example on this and say, now I'm going to defend my neighbor from gossip. It's not enough for me to stand around the water cooler and just not engage in the gossip. But maybe I should speak up and defend my neighbor's reputation when it needs defending from those standing around the water cooler as that common image is. So if you do not carry the vocation to judge, then not only don't judge, but also protect and defend reputation. Uh, Don't judge or share with others who don't have vocation to judge, right? That's what gossiping is all about, is saying neither of us have vocation to judge, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Uh, That's just not helpful. So leave it to those who have vocation to judge. Uh, Interestingly, you may very humbly share with those who have vocation to judge. You are to go to the police officer with any information about a crime. You are to go to a pastor about a member, right? Sometimes we get a little bit too narrowly focused and saying, oh, it's none of my business, none of my business. I'll just pretend I don't know what's going on. And then the pastor becomes the last person in the congregation to know what's going on because nobody wanted to tell them anything about it because they were trying to keep the Eighth Commandment. But just because you pass along information you know to be true to the proper vocational judge does not mean you are gossiping. It means you are giving to the proper vocational authority the information they need to make proper judgment. And as part of that proper judgment, you know, they'll test what you're saying. They're not going to just automatically believe everything that you say. Think of uh, Matthew 18. If someone has sinned against you, go and show him his fault. If he will not listen, bring someone else with you. Well, that person who's coming with you isn't just there just to say, I agree with you, let's go get that sinner. But rather, that person's first responsibility as that second or third witness is to figure out if maybe you've accidentally called the person to repentance incorrectly. And so that second step in Matthew 18 there is a very important way of defending that neighbor's reputation. Lastly, in Matthew 18, notice that when it comes to these private sins, not necessarily big public sins that's known by the whole church, but in these private sins, we handle this very carefully, Matthew 18, so as to protect the sinner's reputation. Yes, they may have sinned against me, but that's not reason for me to malign their reputation, but rather what joy. All the angels in heaven rejoice over the sinner who repents for reconciliation with God and with neighbor, hopefully to undo some of the harm and damage that has been done to the neighbor, but also the joy that that neighbor, that that sinner's reputation is being restored by the neighbors who love him enough to gently call him to repentance and then to rejoice with forgiveness with him rather than just smearing his name through the mud because they were harmed by him in the first place. So a lot to take in in this Eighth Commandment. Absolutely. And could once again, the depth of it can just go in so many different directions and so many other examples that could be given there too. Uh, I do want you to comment just briefly here on uh, one of the things that often is connected with this making a judgment is the scriptural command, especially when it comes to pastors who sometimes 
are called to make judgments in terms of doctrine and in holy living as they serve in their vocation. That line from Jesus that gets thrown out there and misapplied at times, I think, judge not lest you be judged. What are your thoughts on that in relation to this? Yeah, that's a great one, isn't it? It's used by everybody, used by Christians and non-Christians alike, isn't it? Because it's, it's such a convenient verse to use out of context to say, you have no right or no authority to speak to me. Uh, I would remind people that the word there for judge, uh, if I'm not mistaken in the Greek, it's actually the more severe word that talks about basically judging unto condemnation. It doesn't mean that you don't have the authority or the vocational duty to your neighbor to point out right from wrong. So we have turned this idea of judging, we've turned it away from the final judgment of the courtroom judge or whatever. We've turned it from that into simply saying, you're not allowed to say what's right or wrong. Well, that's not true. Again, there are vocational authorities who are to call you to repentance. Uh, The pastor is to call you to repentance, right? A, A person cannot say, pastor, you are not allowed to call me to repentance for my adultery. Stay out of my bedroom. He has an authority and a responsibility from God to judge right from wrong, even in your daily life. And so we often like to generically talk about being sinners and say, yes, pastor, we're all sinners, but you have no authority to, quote unquote, pry into my daily life, judge not lest he be judged. Well, actually, God has given various vocational authorities responsibility to help you properly articulate right from wrong. And even as fellow Christians and neighbors, it is always our duty to confess what is true. And so to simply say, judge not lest ye be judged, to claim that that's the same as saying, you're not allowed to tell me right from wrong. That's just a misappropriation of the scriptures. Certainly do not condemn any more that if you take an authority yourself and then misuse it, then you'll be condemned for misusing that authority. But to simply confess the faith, to simply confess truth versus falsehood is not the same as condemning someone to hellfire. It's simply pointing out to them, this is a sin that needs to be repented of. And that's very much a part of Christian love. Yeah. And so then... Just saying, judge not lest she be judged, it does not mean that you're keeping the Eighth Commandment either, right? Because even within the Eighth Commandment, as we are looking to defend and cover over where the sinner may have strayed, the, the ultimate goal is to lead to repentance and faith, right? And so, that, that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. That's a great point. Even when it gets to the church's judgment of quote unquote excommunication, right? Of saying, we, I'm sorry, we cannot, you know, we cannot commune you anymore. The point isn't to try and condemn them. The point is saying, look, this is a desperate situation where everyone knows your sin and yet you're unwilling to repent of it. And so this is the last thing we can do to try and help bring you to repentance. And so the goal is always the reputation of the neighbor, not only before society, but always before God. Right? This all comes back to God. What is my neighbor standing before God? What is my neighbor standing before me? What is my neighbor standing before the rest of society or the church? We're always wanting to defend that before others, but especially helping our neighbor's reputation before God by, again, depending upon the righteousness of Christ Jesus, especially because we all know that by nature and by reputation, we are sinners. So we can't be opposed to being called to repentance and, oh, how dare you harm my reputation? No, I'm trying to get you to repent and depend upon the righteous reputation of the one who is worthy, right? Worthy is the lamb who is slain to open the book of life. He alone is worthy. And therefore, that's our goal in calling our neighbor to repentance. And that's why we should rejoice that they call us to repentance when it's needed, right? We should rejoice at that, that someone was willing to stick their neck out and do the uncomfortable and say to me, Mark Bestel, you need to repent for this because your reputation before God is on the line. Beautifully stated. All right, we're going to push forward just so that we make sure we get in the ninth and 10th commandments here as well. And I'm going to read and take them together here because they are obviously connected with the idea of coveting. And so I will read both of them here. The ninth commandment from the small catechism, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or get it in a way which only appears right but help and be of service to him in keeping it. And the 10th commandment from the small catechism, 
You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife, workers, or animals, or turn them against him, but urge them to stay and do their duty. Go ahead, Pastor Besson, and go ahead and give us the catechesis lessons on the ninth and 10th commandment. Sure, we'll group them together, partly because Luther actually does in the large catechism. When you look at the large catechism, he actually in one section treats both of these. And so people might ask the question, well, why do we have two commandments on coveting then? It seems like, uh, you know, one covet the house and then wife, manservant, maidservant. Why not just group it as one? And so that leads to another question. Are we sure that the numbering is right? So if you look at the revised numbering that the Protestants brought into play, if I remember my history correctly, they number differently and they brought it into play partly because so much of their emphasis was on the idea of the graven images. And so that became for them the second commandment. First commandment, you shall have no other gods. Second commandment, you shall not make any graven image, which is really an explanation, I think, of the first commandment. But because of that numbering, then they just grouped the ninth and tenth commandments together. And I don't believe the scriptures ever really specifically enumerate the commandments. But I think it's the Lord's Prayer, when we study that in a few episodes, that will show that the historic numbering that we've always had of these commandments is probably the most accurate. So we'll get to that, and we'll just uh, leave the hearer hanging for a couple weeks on that one. But here, though, the focus is on coveting. Okay, well, what does that mean? Whether it's being jealous of your neighbor's livelihood, those who work for him, even his own family— This commandment is, and and Luther sort of seems to hint at this, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but there's a quote in the large catechism in the close of the commandments where he lists off how we have now studied everything about how we harm our neighbor. And again, it sort of goes through what I've already mentioned, life, wife, possessions, reputation. And if I'm not mistaken, the word there that he uses to remind us of the ninth and 10th commandments is sort of the word rights, that our neighbor has a right to maintain a home, a family, a profitable business with loyal workers without constantly having to look over his shoulder and worry that we're coveting him. Uh, Luther's explanation lays out four different ways in which we covet our neighbor and what this word covet sort of entails. The first one is probably the simplest to explain. You know, every confirmation class, they probably explain the idea of being jealous, right? Luther says, no one wants to see someone else have as much as himself. And so, yeah, jealousy is a big problem. Envy, greed, all of those things that we talk about, it really, again, reminds us that this begins in the heart. In fact, Matthew 15, if I recall, Matthew 15, I think it's verse 19, uh, Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder. There's the fifth commandment. Adultery and sexual immorality, sixth commandment. Theft, seventh commandment. And false witness and slander, eighth commandment. So right there in Matthew 15, Jesus points out that all of the second table of the law commandments all originate in the heart. And these ninth and tenth commandments drive us right back to the heart and remind us, look, if you want to look inwardly, if you want to turn inwardly to look at capital M, me, all you're going to find is sin. And coveting is an issue of the heart. And it reminds us that just as the first commandment started off the two tables of law and and, and God's holy commandments, started us off in the heart as saying, who is your God? Is it the one true God or is it capital M me? So now the ninth and 10th commandments say the simple way to explain this at the end of the commandments is that all of this that we do in the second table is about jealousy. Right? All of it is about greed, envy. Luther even brings in a couple other things that could be described here. Sort of a pharisaicalism. In paragraph 300 in the large catechism, he says, This last commandment, therefore, is given not for cheaters in the eyes of the world. It's for the most pious who want to be praised and be called honest and upright people. So this is sort of uh, you know, the pharisaical self-righteousness who do things you know, under the table so that nobody sees their sin. Uh, It's sort of like these subtle thieves, if you will, rather than those who are just out in the open. And yet it's still the same sin, the same greed, the same covetousness that only appears to be doing things in a proper way. Another description here of coveting would be the self-absorbed. Luther says, quote, here they say, first come, first served, and everyone must look to his own interest 
I think you could say, in other words, sort of, again, this dog-eat-dog, rugged individualism, again, good for work ethic, bad for love of neighbor. And Luther includes that here in the Ninth and Tenth Commandments as a reminder to people that even those outward acts that we commit in Commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, Again, they begin in the heart, just as the first table of law has a commandment about everything being a matter of the heart, so the second table of commandments has a law that reminds us everything begins in the heart. The fourth one he talks about, uh, a way of understanding this commandment about coveting is, in my own words, being lovers of the fine print. He says, quote, this is true even if you could keep it honorably before the world. In other words, we sometimes say, let me get away with it if it's legal rather than if it's the right thing to do, right? So this commandment about the idea of enticing away wife, workers, animals, is sort of the idea of saying, I'm not going to openly steal them or openly commit adultery, but I am going to urge them quietly and entice them to know that being with me would be better than being in their current estate. And boy, that happens often in our society, in our world where people say, well, I got it in a legal way. I didn't do anything wrong. What a great reminder at the close of the commandments that God's holy law is not always perfectly mirrored by civil law. And therefore, for the Christian, the civil law is only sort of the substandard civil law, whereas what we ought look to is God's holy law. Who cares if the civil law says it's okay? If it's opposed to God's law, then it's not okay, even if society gives me the go-ahead to commit that particular sin. So in these four ways, these Ninth and Tenth Commandments bring everything back to the heart, bookend the commandments. Again, sin starts in the heart, first commandment, and though much of what the previous commandments have discussed against my neighbor has been outward, These commandments bring us back to the heart. They remind us that everything starts there, that I can outwardly, I can be the kindest fellow. And every time I'm tempted to turn inward in my worship of me, honesty reminds me that no matter how kind I look out there, no matter what kind of veneer I put up for my neighbors and how I smile and that they think I'm just the greatest guy in the world, if I examine my heart, I see that I'm just a sinner. And I have nothing to offer and bring to God, but rather that I utterly depend upon the grace of God. Uh, And as we've already said, this reminds us then, all the way back to the first commandment, there are really only two gods. There's capital M, me, and I'm jealous for what is not mine because I'm not God. And then there's the other true God. And notice how this sort of ties everything together. Remember that the close of the commandments which is really an explanation of the first, but we use at the close of these commandments in the small catechism, the one true God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, notice he has every right to say that because everything belongs to him. And therefore, all of these commandments, as we've now hinted at through the weeks, every single one of these commandments ties us back to him ties us back to that first commandment. He is the one true God who has every right to be jealous toward everything about his creation. But me, as the false God, as the capital M, me, false God, I have no right to be jealous because I'm not God. And so jealousy is for me sin, for God it's holiness, and it has everything to do with the fact that he's God and I'm not. So if I am not God, if capital M, me, is not God, and all of these Ten Commandments now have shown me this, then how in the world can I be the one to address the separation syndrome? Remember, we started this conversation weeks ago with that reality, that because of the fall, everything has fallen apart. It's not just about me being a sinner, but it's that the whole world now has, by this domino effect, all of these consequences of sin, theological separation, psychological separation, sociological separation, ecological separation, physiological separation, all of it is something that needs fixing. And I can't do it. Why? Because the Ten Commandments have now shown me I am not God, right? Capital M, me, is not God. And if me is not God, then I have no answers. And therefore, my hope is that God is merciful and that God will promise deliverance. And so we now need to actually run back to Genesis 3 
and find out, even in the shadows of fallen Eden, does God promise to deliver me from all of the consequences that the false God, capital M, me, has brought into this fallen creation. Which is then a good place for us to go ahead and wrap up here today and also the commandments then. And as you set up for us there, we'll pick up then next week that before we move forward in the catechisms and get into the confession of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we see taught in the creeds, we will first go back to Genesis 3 and examine the solution to the separation syndrome. So that's what's coming up on Concord Matters as we continue this series, The Catechized Life, with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. Thank you, Pastor Bestel, for your catechesis on the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th commandments here today. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. 